hello and welcome back to the SLP Corner podcast. I am so, so, so excited to welcome back Allison Smith from EI Teletherapy. She's a pediatric swallowing and feeding specialist based out of Texas. And you're probably familiar because she came on episode number 13 and we talked all things pediatric feeding and swallowing. It was such a popular podcast, so we decided to record some more for you guys. So welcome back to the SLP Corner Podcast, Allison. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so excited that people were interested and wanted to learn more about pediatric feeding and swallowing. Well, you know what? It's such a fascinating topic. So I'm so excited that we have you on to kind of pick your brain. We actually asked the people um, following our Instagram pages kind of like what they wanted to see more. So this podcast, we tried to tailor what we wanted to talk about. So it's relevant for everyone listening. So in our last episode, we discussed the basics of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. First of all, that might be a good place to start if people are going to be listening to this one. Maybe they could listen to that one first. But you touched on treatment briefly. So I was kind of just wondering if we could dig into that more deeply. And I guess a question would just be what treatment protocols and exercises do you use for children with feeding and swallowing disorders? Yeah, this is always a really tricky and popular question. I feel like I get this message a lot on my Instagram. For example, I'll get a message saying, hey, do you mind sending me the list of exercises that you do for lip closure or hey, can you just send me a list of exercises that you do for your kids with feeding and swallowing? And I wish I had that. Um, It would make our jobs a lot easier. What I struggled with whenever I started working with pediatric feeding and swallowing is I wanted a cookbook. I wanted to know that what I was doing was the correct thing to do. I wanted a protocol where I could say, oh, okay, if they're not doing this, then I need to do this. If they're doing this, then I just need to use this tool and make them better and that's it. Unfortunately, that is not how it works. We don't have a cookbook. Each kid doesn't have a recipe that comes with them that tells us exactly what to do. But I think that's when I found my love in pediatric feeding and swallowing that we really get to use our critical thinking skills. We get to dig in and figure out why is this kid not chewing solids? Why is this kid aversive to purees? What's going on inside their body to tell them not to eat or drink these textures? So we'll get a little bit into treatment, but first I think it's just really important to know the difference between typical and atypical development, understanding neurophysiology, exercise principles, underlying systems that are involved in swallowing. I know last episode we kind of talked about what normal, quote unquote, looked like. So now I thought we would talk about, okay, we know what normal is. So now we saw something that was atypical. So what do we do next? The first thing that I like to do is dig into their underlying systems. What could be telling their body that something's not right here. So I kind of start from like the head down. So head, um, I think of neurology. Is there any reason why with this child, I might need to refer to neurology? Do they have left or right-sided weakness? Do they have overall global developmental delays that might need further looking into like maybe a possible diagnosis of autism needs to be explored or I've had recently a child that actually had cerebral palsy but had gone overlooked by pediatrician, podiatrist, but I had noticed that on 
one side of her body, she wasn't chewing with the left side, she wasn't using her left hand, and she wasn't using her left foot appropriately. And turns out she had cerebral palsy. And I bring that up because if I would have thought, oh, she's not chewing on her left side, let me just make her chew on her left side, I'm missing a really big clinical piece here. So that would be some examples of neuro. Next, I want to look for possible ENT referrals, ears, nose, throat doctor. For an ENT, something that might trigger a referral would be an open mouth posture. If a child is resting with their mouth open or breathing through their mouth, then the questions start going through my head. Okay, is there an upper airway obstruction? Do they have enlarged tonsils? Do they have enlarged adenoids? Is there an airway difference here like laryngomalacia, tracheomalacia, vocal fold paralysis or paresis, subglottic stenosis, any type of atresia in the nasal passageway that might be blocking that airflow. And some of the things that might trigger us to think of maybe laryngomalacia, tracheomalacia would be stertor or strider, the presence of those things. And stertor is the noise from vibration in the pharynx. And that one's kind of a strange sound. I don't know if I don't know if you want me doing this in the microphone, but we can try it. So that would be kind of like a snorting sound. So like, I don't know if you can even hear that. That was great. <laughs> oh, thanks. You know, <laughs> I have many talents. <laughs> I'm impressed. Okay. <laughs> so that would be inspiratory stertor. So that was on the inspiration part of breathing. So you can have expiratory, which is the opposite. That's whenever you exhale. And then we have strider. And that's more of a high pitched whistling sound. And that one comes more from the larynx. So we see this more in laryngomalacia. And it can also have that inspiratory, expiratory, or it can be biphasic where it happens both inspiratory and expiratory. And that one sounds more like uh. So almost like a, I kind of compare it to like Darth Vader, more of that glottal sound, I guess, mm -hmm. rather than up in the nasal passages. So if you can walk into a house, well, I guess now most of us are virtual. So if you turn on your Zoom and you hear a child breathing, it should cue you that there might be some type of airway obstruction or difference that might need looking into. And the reason why this is so important for feeding is breathing is the most important thing that our body needs to do. If we're not breathing appropriately, it's really hard to do. Uh, it's really hard to eat. It's really hard to talk. Our body is going to prioritize breathing over everything else. So we really want to make sure that airway is open and stable so that they can focus on learning other things rather than just maintaining their breath. So that pretty much covers ENT roughly. Before we move on, I have a quick question. If people are wondering what's laryngomalacia, what's tracheomalacia? So laryngomalacia is a floppy airway. So what this looks like is if you put a scope through their nose, their epiglottis will look like an omega shape. So yeah, it's a floppy airway. So whenever they breathe, their epiglottis is kind of covering their airway and vibrates. And then trachea is similar except for the trachea. Tonal atresia is the nasal passageways. And what can happen is rather than the passageways opening up to allow airflow, the bone stays together. And so 
whenever you breathe through your nose, it just comes right back out. Um, so there can be atresia or stenosis. So atresia would be there's absolutely no way that the air can go through and there would have to be surgery. Or stenosis would be a narrowing. Maybe one thing to mention is I'm, I had mentioned vocal fold paralysis or paresis. This is something really to look for in your cardiac kids. Cardiac surgery can sometimes get close to the vagus nerve and vagus nerve innervates your vocal folds. So that would be something to look at if your child has had heart surgery, just something to consider. The next specialist I refer to quite frequently is the GI, the gastroenterologist. A few reasons why I would refer to them is for food allergy, um, which is decently common nowadays. And reflux is another reason why we would refer to a GI. And interestingly, about 50% of reflux in, in infants under the age of one is induced by cow's milk. And so sometimes what happens is we refer to GI, they say, yes, this child has reflux, and they add reflux medication, or um, they might explore positioning, or they might thicken their liquids with rice to keep the formula down. However, we know that 50% of reflux is induced by cow's milk. So if a child is on formula that is dairy-based or is breastfeeding and mom um, consumes dairy in her diet, it might influence the child's reflux and we're not really addressing the underlying cause. So what I like to do if I refer to GI, they say, yes, they, we have re reflux, we've done medication, this, this, and this. I always like to keep a really close eye on if the symptoms have resolved to figure out if it was, you know, reflux isolated or if it was reflux induced by an allergy, because I might have to refer to an allergist in that case if the symptoms continue. I just think that's interesting to think about. That's really interesting. Did you say it's 50% under one, under the age of one? Yes. Wow, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah. And some signs you might see of reflux is irritability during feeds, negative associations with food, strong oral aversions, failure to thrive, acid reaching the airway can be really irritating to the airway. If you're constantly swallowing that acidic reflux, swallowing becomes painful in some kids. So really just as soon as we suspect reflux, we want to get that managed to um, decrease any damage possibly to the airway from reflux. And also, you know, we can sometimes aspirate reflux and that's dangerous because it's acidic and, you know, we, we just don't want that in our lungs. It's not super safe. I feel like we usually associate aspiration with aspirating, you know, while swallowing, but aspiration can also happen after the swallow has been cleared. So sometimes we see kids with recurrent pneumonia, they go to a swallow study, their swallow study is completely clear, but we haven't realized that they have reflux, that they are aspirating that, and that's what's causing the pneumonia. Um, so just something to always be considering. That's such an important consideration because I also think that there's a misconception that reflux is associated with older adults. It might not be something people consider a lot when they're thinking about younger children, especially under the age of one. I don't know how many people would consider reflux in that population. So that's, that's really interesting. Definitely. And, you know, I had mentioned under one, which yes, they have reflux, but it also of course happens over the age of one. So, you know, you can have a two and a half year old that they could be having reflux from a dairy allergy as well. Um, so just wanted to 
clarify that. Another one that I might refer to a GI doctor, and this is a relatively new diagnosis that, that is becoming really popular in the literature, is EOE, which is eosinophilic esophagitis. And this has really similar symptoms with GERD, so refusals, um, vomiting. Typically, these kids have really like projectile vomiting, failure to thrive, uh, food impaction. So they might feel like tightness in their chest, which with the population I work with, birth to three, they're probably not going to tell me that they have tightness in their chest. And it usually happens with coarser textures of food. So we usually see the food impactions with older children who have progressed with a variety of textures. But you know, for those who work with 10-year-olds, you might see that. What it is, it's an inflammatory disease of the esophagus, and it's diagnosed by endoscopy. So the camera down your nose or throat, I guess, we're going to say diagnosed by endoscopy. And what they do is they take a biopsy and they count the epithelial cells, or they can just look under a microscope and see the inflammation. And allergy is present with these children in about 40% of cases. So again, we've diagnosed the EOE, but now we have to figure out what's causing the EOE. So just because we have a diagnosis doesn't always mean we've still, like we haven't always gotten to the root cause still. It can guide us for sure. Um, so a common treatment for this is dietary changes. Um, the six food elimination diet is really popular um, recommendation for these children. So no cow's milk, soy, wheat, eggs, peanuts, um, fish, or shellfish. And then they have medications that can help manage this as well. And of course, SLPs are not recommending these things. This is all from the GI doctor. The next physician I might refer to is the pulmonologist. So I might refer to a pulmonologist in the case of a child with asthma who's having a lot of feeding difficulties or a child who is grossly aspirating everything but is not developing any pulmonary difficulties, I might just want to err on the side of caution and refer to pulmonologists just to make sure that their lungs are staying clear even though they're not showing signs of any infections. So pulmonology is one that I use more of a clearance or just to make sure that this kid is safe. Usually if they have a really complex lung issue, by the time they get to me, it's already been addressed but it's something that's always in the back of my mind. And then finally, medications. It's obviously not a referral, but medications is something I always look into whenever getting a new child with a feeding or swallowing disorder because medications can induce dysphagia in some cases or exacerbate the symptoms. So um, a specific type of medications called anticholinergics are associated with um, dry mouth. Um, some kids have a lower appetite, and there's a huge variety of drugs that can be related to feeding and swallowing issues. So highly recommend the book, Drugs and Dysphagia. Also, usually any pediatric feeding and swallowing textbook will have, you know, a chapter or at least a section discussing this topic in depth. Definitely something to consider. A fun story with this one. I currently have a child with spina bifida, and I've had him for about a year and two months into treatment, I was like, wow, we are not making progress. And I'm really big on finding the root cause. So, you know, we we're referring to GI, we we're referring here and there. 
And I finally took a look at the medications and I found this one medication that he was on that fell into that category of anticholinergic. I, it was a bladder medication. So I, you know, talked to the nurse, they weren't concerned. Mom talked to the doctor, they weren't concerned. So I was like, okay, I'm just the speech therapist. I don't know anything. And so nine months go by and turns out it was the medication. So family, you know, this kid eventually pretty much stopped eating everything and was just kind of on a decline. And we couldn't figure out why he was cleared by neuro GI wasn't sure what was going on. So we took a look again at the medication. They took him off and now he's eating, you know, back to his baseline. And so on one hand, it's frustrating, especially for those parents, because they had advocated for this a while ago. But on the other hand, it just shows that SLPs can play a really big part in finding the root cause. You're not just an SLP. You can play a really big role in managing a child's stars. Just wanted to throw that fun story out there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's crazy that you notice that and then another nine months, nine months. That's horrible. Yeah. And, you know, it was really interesting because, you know, at one point his clinic was discussing sending him to an intensive feeding clinic. And, you know, I was at a spot where I was doing everything that I knew how to do. We weren't making progress. So I was, you know, leaning towards the intensive feeding clinic where the family would have to pack up their life and move three hours away and stay at this place for five weeks in a hotel. It's all to say that typically with kids, it's not a behavior. They're not choosing not to eat. We have to find out why. Why aren't they eating? Is it painful for them? Are they not hungry? Do they have dry mouth? And so that's why I really wanted to talk about this before diving into treatment because with some of these children, a child with EOE, no matter what I did during therapy, if the EOE is not addressed or the reflux or the medications, we're not going to make progress. No matter if I have the best recipe for this kid, you know, really digging into the why. Yeah, definitely. I like how you always want to find the root cause. Kids aren't choosing not to eat the food, finding out what exactly is going on. And I think that goes for so much in therapy, even beyond feeding and swallowing. Like when there's a certain behavior, it's really important to look at why that behavior is occurring. I was lucky enough to have one of my placements with a board certified behavior analyst and an SLP. So it was really interesting because the behaviorists, they really find out that root cause and the underlying thing that's creating all of these behaviors or we think that it's a disinterest or something like that from the child. So it's interesting to see that overlap with feeding and swallowing as well. For sure. And I think it also just starts to change our perspective of how we're interacting with this kid. If I go into a session and I see a kid throw a piece of food and I think, oh, this kid is a behavioral problem, that is going to change how I interact with this kid But if I come at it from a lens of compassion and I think, wow, he's throwing that piece of food and he's trying to tell me something, maybe that color was too overwhelming. Maybe that smell was too much. Maybe his tummy doesn't feel good. And the thought of putting food in his mouth makes him want to vomit. When we kind of start to shift our perspective a little bit, that's whenever we see change in therapy. And whenever we start building really strong relationships with our kids and the families. And I also see 
whenever I'm talking to a child or commenting on what a child's doing, it starts to change how the parent talks to the child as well. Whenever I'm coming at it from, oh, wow, like that was wet. Like that, that puree does not feel good on your hands. Let's get a napkin. Let's, whereas, you know, maybe previously someone would have said, oh, like, it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Just touch it. And so if we, you know, relate to the kids, see where they're coming from, they're going to trust us and be more willing to try new things. And I like how you said that it even changes how the parents interact with their children as well when they see how you're interacting with the child. Yeah. Yeah. Some of my favorite kids to work with are infants because we always think that infants, you know, they don't have their first words till 12 months, but before 12 months, they are communicating so much with us by their body, by their face, by the sounds that they're making. And so I love working with infants because almost every time I hear in the evaluation, oh, they're just lazy. Oh, you know, they're this, they're that. And then once I start saying, oh, like, this one, this nipple is too fast for me. Like that's, that's making me cough or choke or, oh, like I need a break. Oh, this is overwhelming. It's really interesting to see like a couple of weeks later that the parents start modeling almost exactly what I was saying. I feel like it lessens stress on parents part because they're able to connect with their baby in a different way. And so I just, I love repairing slash building that bond between baby and mom or toddlers and mom and dad. I usually work with moms, so I'm not trying to leave dads out. Dads are definitely a big part of therapy. It just emphasizes, again, the importance of having parents involved. Definitely. Okay, before we move on, just to recap, first of all, I love that you use the analogy of the cookbook and the recipe. That's just perfect for feeding, swallowing, language and speech. And I'm learning that like it's like, you know that in grad school and then you start working, it's like even more, there is no one recipe for every child. Yeah. Every kid is, it's crazy. I can have kids that I'm like on paper, y'all look almost exactly the same. And then I see you and I'm like, not the same at all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's like, I like how you preface everything with that. And then, okay. So you said number one, neuro, and then look for ENT referrals. And then You talked about GI referrals, pulmonology, and then medications. And you gave the resource drugs and dysphagics. I was going to ask you, what's a resource? Because (laughs) it's like, we don't learn that. (laughs) No, no, we really don't. Moving, moving to MBSS. That's what you call them in the States. (laughs) (laughs) Or VFSS, what we call them in Canada. In Canada, we sometimes call them MBS too. I don't know. It just depends like where you are. But when would you refer for for an MBSS? Yeah, so I refer usually if there's frequent respiratory infections, if I'm seeing other overt signs and symptoms during a mealtime, excessive coughing, choking that don't resolve with other, other modifications that I might make. So if a child takes a huge gulp of water and coughs, then I might try a smaller bowl of size to see if that resolves the cough. However, we have to keep in mind that 80% of aspiration in pediatrics is completely silent. So when in doubt, I refer to a modified. Now, I don't want to refer for a modified if it's not needed. So you do have to kind of use some critical thinking when deciding if this is a procedure that is worth putting a child through. And obviously it's not an invasive procedure. They're not 
getting poked at, prodded at, although now with COVID, they do have to get COVID tested before um, unmodified. And so, you know, I just don't want to put a child in a situation where they're not going to feel comfortable. But on the other hand, I want them to be safe. So if I have any suspicion whatsoever that this child might be aspirating and it's causing respiratory infections, difficulty with hydration, then I will refer for a modified. Another thing we have to consider though is if a child is sensory avoidant, modifieds have different flavoring for their foods and liquids that they present because they use barium. So if it's a child who is a really selective eater and only eats their Tyson chicken nuggets and apple juice, putting them through a modified might not be very successful because they might refuse anything you present to them. So again, it's just a constant risk benefit analysis that we're having to do. And I always make this decision with the parents. So I say, hey, I am seeing that they've had pneumonia two times this year. I see that they're really having difficulty drinking their apple juice. I really want to see what's going on from a physiological standpoint um, to see how their swallowing is working and if um, are they aspirating from their swallow, are they aspirating reflux, again, just getting to the root cause. But if it's a child where we are just a picky eater, we eat our Tyson chicken nuggets and our apple juice, but we've never had an infection in our life and we drink our apple juice, no problem. I'm not going to refer for a modified for that child because there's not any indication at this point that even if they are maybe silent aspirating a trace amount, it's not affecting their quality of life. And really, we don't have enough research at this time to determine what's a normal amount of aspiration in pediatrics. There are a lot of cases where we can be um, a functional aspirator. I know for me, like there's times where I can tell I've aspirated, but I'm totally fine and I'm healthy. And so again, it's just considering the whole clinical picture. We don't have to refer for a modified for every single feeding kid we get on our caseload. But if there's ever any, any, any question about the integrity of the swallowing physiology, I refer for a modified. I cannot believe that 80% of aspiration in pediatrics is silent. That's crazy. That's, yeah, that is really crazy. That's really kind of scary. Yeah, it is scary. What I find reassurance from is, so let's say I go to do a feeding evaluation and this family says, oh, like they're sick all the time. You know, she doesn't like to drink. She doesn't whatever, then I'm thinking, oh, are you avoiding drinking because are you aspirating it? Even though she's not coughing, choking, whatever, I would still probably refer for a modified to see if that could be any type of root cause. And remember, we can also aspirate our own saliva. So even for a child who's completely NPO, nothing by mouth, they could still develop aspiration pneumonia from reflux, from aspirating their own saliva. So just because a child is NPO, doesn't mean that they can't aspirate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's important because kind of like we were mentioning earlier, it's easy to forget the other things that are involved that could be causing them to aspirate. Okay, so that is part one for this podcast. Part two will be out next Monday. We talked for another 30 minutes or so, so instead of having one super long episode, we thought that it might be best to do a part one and a part two, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, please follow Allison at ei.teletherapy. You can find me on Instagram. 
and Facebook at SLP Corner. And please, please, pretty please rate and review the podcast. And I'll see you next Monday.